Good morning, everyone. So we're going to be looking at this uh, account from Luke's Gospel of the arrest of Jesus, part of the narrative of the last few hours of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, and then the resurrection in his approach to Easter. It's probably not escaped the attention of many of you that uh, in a few months' time will be the World Cup football finals in Brazil, and already the media are speculating about what would happen if England were involved in another penalty shootout. You see, England English footballers don't seem to do very well at penalty shootouts in World Cup finals. They tend to miss. With the weight of expectation, the huge pressure of hundreds of millions of people watching them, and maybe tens of millions of English people urging them on, they seem to fail. But how do you cope with pressure and crises in your life? When life is easy, it's easy to do well. It's easy to be good. But when you face a crisis, that becomes so much more difficult. I think one of the themes coming out of the account that we just read is about how people cope under pressure and under severe trial. Before I look at that into more detail, just recap what we learnt last week, where we read the account of Jesus' last meal shared with his disciples, some of his followers. Um, it's a meal that really sets the scene for the account that follows, leading up to his crucifixion. It's a meal where Jesus gives us some tools and some insight into understanding these events, horrific events that were about to unfold for Jesus and for his disciples. You see, that last meal that Jesus ate with his followers was the Passover. It was a meal that the Jewish people had celebrated since about a thousand years previously. It was a meal that celebrated the Exodus, those events which led to the people of God being delivered from Egypt, delivered from oppression and slavery, and setting them free um, to enjoy a new covenant and nationhood and new land uh, under God. It's a meal when they celebrated the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, a sacrifice which saved the Israelites from the angel of death. And as Jesus celebrated this meal with his disciples, he tells them, you're going to need to reinterpret this meal because tonight the bread that we share, the wine that we share, represents me giving my body, giving my blood, giving myself unto death as a new Passover sacrifice. A new Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus who would achieve a new and even better and greater salvation, greater than Israel's liberation from Egypt. For, as Jesus tells us, there would be a new covenant that would provide for the forgiveness of sins of all nations, providing reconciliation to God and the hope of resurrection and eternal life. That is the big picture, the big story, the tools that we're given 
to understand the unfolding events that lead up to the cross, that give Jesus' death on the cross a meaning that the thousands or millions of others who died upon the cross, we can't give to it. But what about this next instalment where Jesus leaves the secret room where he shared that last meal and he takes his disciples to the Mount of Olives where he prays and uh, where he encourages his disciples to pray. And then there's this unfolding of events where Jesus is arrested and things seem to go wrong. Another illustration, I was reading recently a book called Dominion by C.J. Sansom. It's a book that reimagines the history of the 1940s and 50s, a history where Britain surrendered to Germany in 1940, where there's an increasingly authoritarian and fascist state in Britain. And it's a, it's a thriller set in that context, but it explores how people react to such developments in Britain. And there is one scene in that book where there are Jews being rounded up on the streets of London and taken away to camps. And it's interesting to see how different people are portrayed responding to that. There are those who just walk away. Others who just look on and say nothing. There are others who try to take on the military police with violence. And there are those who sit in the road to protest in a pacifist way. If you were faced with the pressure, the moral dilemma of a situation like that, how would you cope? What would you do? And yet we have a similar situation here with Jesus' arrest. But going back to the meal, the the time in the Mount of Olives, it's interesting to note that Jesus recommends that his disciples pray. He says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And that recalls Jesus' teaching on prayer, doesn't it? It recalls the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's true that the word translated by temptation in Greek can also be translated by the word trial. And I would suggest that it's when we are under trial that we can be most tempted. The idea is that when we face trial and pressure and suffering, we will face temptations that we may not face when life is easy. And so there's that recommendation from Jesus that when we are under pressure, under stress, facing times of crisis and pain, then we need to pray for ourselves and each other that we would not yield to temptation. It's easier to stand firm in the faith. It's easier to live a good life when life is easy. It's not so easy to do when life is hard. And so Jesus recommends, knowing what's going to happen that evening, he recommends that the disciples pray so that they might find the strength and the moral compass to get through the days and the hours that lie ahead. But what do the disciples do? They sleep. They sleep. I want to suggest that praying or sleeping 
determines what happens in the remainder of the account that we read this morning. A group of armed guards arrives to meet Jesus. Judas is leaving, leading them. And in the midst of his betrayal, he dares to kiss Jesus. Judas had not prayed. He was not even there when Jesus encouraged his disciples to pray. He had lost his way well before that. We can maybe ask ourselves, why did Judas betray Jesus? It's probably the case that Jesus did not turn out for him in the way that he wanted or expected. You see, many Jews were hoping for the kind of saviour who would restore Israel's nationhood. The kind of saviour who would be a political or military figure who would kick the Romans out and bring Israel back to its days of glory and security and prosperity. Well, Jesus just didn't seem to be doing that kind of thing. But why, why betray him? Some commentators suggest he was just motivated by money. That may be the case. Others suggest that he may have actually wanted to provoke the kind of situation where Jesus would be obliged to throw off all restraint and call upon some kind of glorious divine intervention that would end up throwing the Romans out. I have to admit, I have some sympathy with that position. But that was not Jesus' plan, that was not God's plan. And things did not turn out for Judas as he wanted or expected. We can ask ourselves, how do we feel when Jesus doesn't turn out to be the kind of saviour, the kind of king that maybe we want or maybe we expect? When we are disappointed, that kind of realisation can bring a crisis of faith or temptations. I want us to look a bit more now at the example of Peter who is quite prominent in this account. Peter was with Jesus in the Garden of Olives. He had heard this advice to pray, and yet, with the rest of his disciples, he falls asleep. And Mark confirms this. Peter did not pray when he needed to pray. And so, as Jesus had already predicted, when the hour of crisis came, things went badly wrong for Peter. First of all, when the temple guard came to take Jesus away, Peter took out his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. I saw a young man wandering around with a plastic sword here and I thought we were going to have a a reenactment of this event. But uh, he seems to have disappeared and my ears are safe. It was actually, Luke does not say who struck the blow, but John... He's ready to say in his gospel it was Peter. Peter had been following Jesus for three years. How many times had he heard, love your enemies? But in this time of crisis, he pulls out his sword. Fortunately, he's not a very good swordsman. It's only the ear that disappears, not the head. That is not loving your enemy. That's going back to the old ways. And how easy it is to forget Jesus' teaching when we face pressure, when we're in a time of crisis. Many of you know that uh, I have a 
a Bible teaching ministry by radio to to Africa. And we do hear tales from Africa sometimes of Christians in extreme poverty who when they receive money from the West to build a school will put it in their own pockets. But when you can't feed your families, when you can't pay their school bills, when you can't pay their medical bills, that temptation must be so extreme and intense. And there are some who go back to the old ways, especially when everyone around them is corrupt. I'm not here to judge them. Others, when they're sick, will go to the witch doctor. It's sad, but when you're in a crisis, when you're under pressure, how easy it is to go back to the old ways and to forget Jesus' teaching. But let's not look overseas, let's look into our own hearts. When you're faced with pressure, what old ways do you tend to go back to? We live in a a society where many seem to want to escape reality and pressure by by drinking too much or other inappropriate forms of escapism. Is that kind of thing a temptation for you? When people disappoint you or offend you or harm you, are you tempted to get back at them in some way? We might not take out a sword, but we can take out hurtful words. There might be more devious, respectable ways of returning evil with evil. There may be situations of pressure in the workplace where you are tempted to be dishonest. When faced with trial and pressure, it's so easy to forget Jesus' teaching, to go back to the old ways, go back to the ways that people around us use. And then later we see Peter, he's in the courtyard, he's had the courage to follow the arrest party and go to the high priest's house. However, once there he seems to want to merge into the background and when he is challenged as to whether he knows Jesus, well once again, under the pressure of that situation, perhaps with the fear of being arrested himself. He tells a lie three times and he denies knowing Jesus. Let's not be hard on Peter. That was a situation of extreme pressure, crisis and fear. And are we any different? when we have emotional reactions of anxiety and fear, it becomes more difficult to stand up for Jesus and to do what is right. Maybe in some of your situations there's that temptation to want to merge into the background, to be like everyone else. You don't want to be asked awkward questions. You don't want to be seen to be different. And there is that temptation to fudge our answers, to compromise our answers, to water down the truth when we are challenged. And then later, like Peter, we feel we've let Jesus down. Would Peter have conducted himself any differently if he had prayed in that garden? Well, no, it's just speculation. And we know that Jesus knew in advance what was happened. 
But I want to suggest to you that if Jesus had asked his disciples to pray, then surely that's a suggestion that prayer would have made a difference to them on that evening. It would make a difference to us ourselves if when faced with temptation, under crisis, under pressure, we simply prayed. It's perhaps a little demoralizing to look at the disciples and ourselves and to see how how easy it is to get things wrong when we're under pressure. And so for that reason, I want to concentrate our attention now on Jesus and on how he coped when under pressure. (coughs) Jesus knew the enormous magnitude of what was going to happen to him in the, the hours that followed. He was aware of the brutality, the injustice, the humiliation, the abandonment that was awaiting him. And yet this was the moment that God, Jesus, they'd been working towards, they'd been building up to it, they'd been heading towards it. And as that time comes, Jesus knew what he had to do. He faced temptation, he really did. But he faced up to it with the struggle of prayer. The cross was before him and he really did ask himself, do I have to go through with this? Is there no other way? Is there no alternative to what I'm going to have to endure in the coming hours? Do I really have to drink this cup of judgment? For these disciples who've just, are they worth it? The prospect of the cross brought very, very real anguish to Jesus. It would do to any man. And Jesus was a, a real man, an authentic man. Faced with that prospect as we all would, there was that conflict of will. If there was an easier way out, surely, why not? God's plan was demanding, difficult and painful. But Jesus prayed. It wasn't an easy time of prayer. We read of his anguish. We read of though that sweat dropping profusely onto the ground. And we read that as Jesus prayed, he was strengthened. Strengthened by an angel. As he prayed, Jesus found the strength to face down temptation, Jesus found the strength to realign his own will with the will of the Father. He found the strength to trust that God's ways are the best ways, even if they are the most demanding, difficult and painful ways. Jesus found the strength to submit to God, to do that which was right, whatever the cost. And I would dare suggest that this time of prayer in Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives 
determines what happens next. It was there that he found that determination to endure all that was going to happen to him. There are some theologians who like to speculate whether there was a real choice involved here, whether the eternal Son, Jesus, could have refused, could have said no, could have opted out. Personally, I would suggest that this temptation, there was a real moral and spiritual choice that was faced not only by Jesus in his authentic humanity, but it was faced by Jesus in his authentic divinity. We can only speculate that what would have happened if he decided not to go through with it. Jesus did go through with it, so it's not really a question that we need to answer. But now that was that real struggle there in the garden. But once that struggle in prayer was won, Jesus continued determined on his way to the cross. And when he is arrested, he remains in control rather than losing control. When he's arrested, he conducts himself consistently with his own teaching. He does not respond violently. He does not return harm with evil. He even shows love for his enemy. There's a man there with his ear sliced off and Jesus takes the time to heal him. Jesus isn't so much taken rather than giving himself up in the knowledge that to do so is to remain in God's purposes for his life and his death. Jesus remains serene, he remains in control of his own destiny and he conducts himself with great dignity when everyone else around him are losing their dignity. What meaning can we give to these accounts of Jesus' arrest? Jesus was about to die for us and in our place that we might have forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to God. There's also a sense in which Jesus lived for us. And that his righteous life, his mature life, his good life was lived in our place and for us. Some theologians, in fact the Apostle Paul as well, like to call Jesus the second Adam. We know that Adam and Eve, when they faced temptation, they failed. Well, Jesus is called the second Adam because whenever he faced temptation, he succeeded. And he did so in our place and for us. That when God looks upon us in Christ, he sees us too as living that kind of life. I just want to know, before we close, consider this narrative through the lens of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 16, and bring you some encouragements. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 to 16 say, 
the author writes, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And so let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So Jesus is described here as a high priest. Maybe that's not a word that's familiar with us in our culture, but it would have been familiar with people in Jesus' day and age. A high priest acted as an intermediary or a mediator between God and men, bringing the two together, bridging the gap between the two. But what do we learn about Jesus as high priest from this text, which is relevant to the account of the the arrest? Well, in many ways, the themes of temptation and of prayer come out very strongly once again we learn that Jesus was tempted just as we are. Surely we've seen that today in the account of his arrest, in the account of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We can never say that Jesus was not tempted. He was tempted in an extreme and intense way that produced very real anguish, confronted with a very real spiritual and moral dilemma. Jesus was pushed to the extreme with the trial and pressure and temptation that he faced. So yes, Jesus was tempted just as we are. Sometimes when we go through a severe trial, when we face moral, spiritual dilemmas, when we struggle with temptation, We can think, no one understands me. No one's been through what I'm going through. But we're wrong when we think that. We're wrong because Jesus has been there. And because he's been there, he understands you very deeply and personally when you face similar trial and temptation. Jesus understands you because he's been there as well. Some people might want to flippantly say he's worn the t-shirt. He's seen it, he's felt it in the depth of his own heart and mind. Gut-renting temptation. The depth of his soul to the point of sweating drops. He's been there and he understands you when you face similar temptation and trial. You're not alone. And because Jesus understands, Jesus shows compassion and love. And as it says in Hebrews, he's ready to shower upon you his grace and his mercy. And so he encourages us in our time of need. 
to go confidently to God and to expect from God the kind of grace and mercy that will fit and be appropriate for us in our time of need. We've read of Peter's failure, his failure to pray, failure to pray, his violence, he denied his master and his friend three times. When he faced pressure, when he faced a crisis, he made a big, big mess of things. The cock crowed as Jesus said it would. And Peter catches Jesus glancing at him. And I know it's not explicit in the text, but I like to think that within that glance, it was a glance of understanding and compassion and grace and mercy that contributed to G- to Peter's remorse, that contributed to helping Peter to turn around and come back to God. And we know from John's Gospel, we know from the Acts of the Apostles, that Jesus forgave Peter, restored Peter, and helped Peter to become a new man who was changed and transformed and able to go out and preach the Gospel. In Peter's time of need, Jesus showed him grace and mercy that made him a new person. And we can have similar times of need. We can get things wrong. We can fail morally and spiritually. Our emotions, our conduct can get so out of control that we cause ourselves and others great harm. That can be one such time of need for us. But Jesus tells us that we can go confidently to him. Not the confidence of presumption, but a humble confidence. Knowing that we will receive from God grace and mercy. Because Jesus understands. And because he has compassion. Jesus in his grace and mercy forgives. He offers a new start in life. He gives himself to us as a friend who will pick us up and help us on our way. He gives himself to us to comfort. He gives to heal the broken hearted. He gives to rebuild our lives on a stronger foundation. He gives to make something new and more beautiful of our lives. His grace and his mercy is beyond all measure. And he's there whenever we need, whatever our time of need may be, however often we fail and return. I want to suggest, though, that there is another time of need that we have that is probably preferable to follow. It's surely better to approach God confidently and to ask for his grace and mercy before we fail rather than after. That grace and that mercy is there after we fail. But surely it's better to to win the struggle in prayer before we fail. To find the strength in prayer to overcome 
the temptations that we face, to find the strength in prayer to realign our will with God's will. And there are very real times of need when we face those temptations. But rather than running away from Jesus towards disaster, let us run to Jesus and with confidence ask for his grace and mercy mercy, so that in prayer we might find the strength to be the kind of people that Jesus wants us to be. When we face pressure, when we face crises, when we face trial and temptation. Yes, Jesus can help us to pick up the pieces when things go wrong. But let's go to him before that happens and find in him grace and mercy, strength and wisdom and all that we need to be the kind of people that he wants us to be. Yes, run to Jesus. He has been where we are. He has been where you may feel you are this morning. Run to Jesus confidently and expect from him all that you need in your time of need. That's not saying it's going to be easy. It's not saying it's going to be without pain. But with Jesus, we can overcome and persevere and grow be the kind of people he wants us to be. So let us close now with prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has been where we so often find ourselves, confronting temptation when under pressure. We thank you that he did not sin. We thank you that he's been to the cross that we might be forgiven for our failures, moral and spiritual. And Heavenly Father, we want to come before you now, your throne of grace, with confidence, expressing our need of you and trusting that we will receive your grace and your mercy. We each of us face very different situations in life, very different pressures. Maybe some are facing crisis and temptation. We ask that you would draw near to them this morning and make known your grace and your mercy according to their need that they might be strengthened to overcome and to persevere and to stand firm in that wonderful faith that you've given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.